The views and opinions expressed on this show belong solely to the hosts and their guests and do not reflect the views of any outside institutions unless explicitly stated. What's up, everybody? My name is Steve Anderwall. And I'm Justin Klosser. And, and we're, we're your hosts of Cannabis Cum Laude, a podcast devoted entirely to cannabis. We're going to talk cultivation, business, medicine, science, politics, advocacy, culture, and everything in between. Because let's face it, the cannabis industry is complicated, it's robust, and it has a ton of moving parts. So it's going to be our job to help you understand it a little bit better. So tune in every Friday morning for a brand new episode. And if you have a question that you'd like to have us answer on one of our shows, email us at questions at cannabiscumlaude.com. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Cannabis Cum Laude. Uh, I think I speak for both Justin and I to say that we are very excited for uh, today's guest today because we have a cannabis podcasting legend joining us. Uh, I know personally you've been a mentor of mine from afar. I've listened to probably every single one of your episodes and a lot of them twice. Um, You're an incredibly smart guy, and I'm really happy to have you on the show. Uh, and Tad Hussey is going to be joining us from Kiss Organics, and he is the host of the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. So a little bit of background on Tad. He received his bachelor's from the University of Washington in 2000, and then his master's from Macquarie University in Australia in 2005. Upon returning to the States, Tad took over the online business, research, and consulting for Kiss Organics. In 2011, due to an interest in urban farming, chickens, and indoor growing, Ted decided to take the business in a new direction, which evolved into the Kiss Farm. During his free time, Ted also coaches a club volleyball team and manages an edible landscape in his front yard. Today, we're going to take advantage of having an organic gardening expert on the show and really dive into soil, amendments, and compost teas. Ted, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm honored. Really appreciate the invite. Yeah, it's good to have you. Appreciate it. You know, I... I think we can both say we've learned a lot from you from listening to your show. Uh, you really are a soil expert amongst expert having many expertises in other uh, uh, areas. So I guess the first question I, I, we'd like to talk about is really what makes soil a soil? And um, I, I was uh, corrected by a, a buddy of mine about a year ago who was also in soil uh, and in composting. And I made the mistake of saying, I need to order some more dirt. And I got scolded because that, at that point I realized that soil is very different. So in your eyes, what makes soil soil and different from dirt? Yeah, you know, my father's a lot like your buddy in that regard. Uh, he hates the word dirt because dirt's sort of dead. It doesn't, it doesn't grow things. Um, soil is very much alive. But when we talk about soil, what we're really talking about is uh, sort of sand, silt, and clay, which are sized fractions of, uh, of material that, that tip is typically what soil scientists or agronomists are talking about when they're talking about soil, which is a little bit confusing because as growers, a lot of times we're not really using soil unless we're actually growing in the ground. Um, most growers are using a potting soil, which technically is considered a soilless media. And so uh, it has very different properties and different aspects to it than soil. And so it's important to know the distinction between the two um, to better understand what you're talking about. Because a, a lot of really great soil scientists um, don't transition over to the soilless media side. It's not, uh, it's not the same material. So, uh, I, I think, I, I think that's all I wanted 
really get at in terms of highlighting the differences. Awesome. So then I know uh, we kind of kind of had it brought up in conversations prior to uh, today that uh, there's there's always this talk of living soil and then soil. Like I'm I'm certain that most of all soils outside on the ground are obviously they're they're probably alive, but some more so than others. So what are we looking for when we're looking for like a good living soil? What 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 makes living soil living soil? Yeah, I mean that term living soil really popped up uh I'd say maybe five to eight years ago now, maybe even a little bit longer. I first started hearing it uh, back in the day. There were a bunch of us on this forum called IC Mag in the organic soil section. And people were looking at reusing potting soil and uh, amending it and kind of managing it like you would, you know, a, a farmer working with outdoor soils. And so this term living soil just kind of took off. It's really doesn't refer to anything. It's just uh, a, a terminology that was sort of created by the industry. I would say even created by the cannabis industry. Um, and then there's a lot of arguments over what living soil really is. But the general concept is that you have um, you have a, a soilless media, so a potting soil or actual soil that has a lot of biological activity in it. Uh, the importance being that um, the microbes are what's really making the nutrients available to the plant. So when you put out organic fertilizer, for example, like alfalfa meal or molasses or all these things, uh, you're not directly feeding the plant these NPK values. What you're doing is you're feeding all these microbes that are then cycling the nutrients and making them into a plant available form. And that's that's the key difference. And some people will argue that, you know, in order for it to be a living soil, you can't get living soil out of a bag. You have to... Uh, you know, work the material for multiple cycles. You have to have some establishment of some, you know, different ecology over time in succession before that soil is truly living. Other people will say, no, you know, you can buy living soil out of a bag. So it, it's really hard to say. I don't know if there's a, a clear definition, but the general consensus is that it, it is in general organic um, and it's biologically active and we're managing the soil from a biological perspective and that we're, you know, feeding and nurturing the biological diversity and uh, overall biomass in that soil. You know, I've personally learned a lot over the last few years about what makes a good soil and how to amend soil. And I realized there's a lot of different ways to cut the cake in terms of amendments. You know, do you have any particular amendments or things that you personally like to see in a soil? Uh, and if so, why? Oh, that's a that's a big question. There's so many different things you can put into a soil mix. Um, really, you want to start with your compost fraction uh, because that whatever the nutritive qualities of that mix is, whatever elements are in there, is sort of what you want to build your soil around. So, if your compost or your earthworm castings, which will you know generally comprise anywhere from let's say 15 to 33 percent of your total mix, um, if we're talking about soilless media. Uh, if it's really high in potassium, then you would want to adjust down your potassium inputs, for example, or if it's low in calcium then, or in the pH, you know, maybe your pH is low, then you'd want to add, you know, a certain forms of calcium to raise your pH. So there's all these different factors that relate back to, um, trying to sort of create a good balance of nutrients so that all these nutrients can be plant available, um, and, and keep you within a pH range that's going to be optimal for plant uptake. So, 
I mean, there's a ton of amendments. I'm happy to talk about any of them individually in terms of their pros and cons, but I don't want people to feel like I have to find fish meal or I have to sure. use kelp meal or I need to use alf organic alfalfa meal or my soil is going to suck because that's just not the case. It's really all about um, working with what you can source and, and balancing that all out correctly. Point. So kind of to circle back to amending a little bit there, uh, you, you touched on with the IC mag uh, website that, um, or forum rather, that people were talking about trying to amend their soilless media, right? And uh, typically we see that a lot of cannabis growers end up throwing out their media. Can, can you explain kind of the, the reasoning behind why this, this happens and like if there's a way to avoid it? Like amending. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So there's, I mean, the reason the cannabis industry threw out their media was because, uh, well, there are a bunch of reasons. One of them is the fact that the value of the cannabis was so high, they could afford to spend a lot of money on bottled nutrients on media and just bring it in every cycle because they're making so much money on cannabis. But as the legal market started to take off, you know, margins shrunk, people had to be a lot uh, smarter with what they were investing in. And then um, I think that's probably what sparked it. And then the biggest reason for not reamending is, is pests. You know, um, if you were dealing with pest pressure, you know, whether it was root aphids or broad mites or thrips or, or anything, um, removing your media and cleaning your space allows you to have a much better fresh start for your next cycle. So uh, there's a ton of reasons to remove your media. In terms of reasons to keep your media in place, um, the benefits there are obviously cost and labor. So you don't have the cost of buying new media. The cost to re-amend soil is much lower than it is to replace it. You don't have the labor, whether you know, you're a home grower or a commercial facility of moving that material out, having to dispose of it. Um, you know, throwing a bunch of soil with perlite all over your front yard is just like the biggest sign that you're a home grower. Uh, the first time it rains, you know, so that's not a great solution. And a lot of times too, these, you know, traditionally growers have overapplied uh, phosphorus, um, sometimes nitrates as well. And so these things leach into our, our groundwater. So there's a lot of environmental things to consider too. You know, um, the peat moss that's in there has to be harvested. The cocoa core has to be harvested. You know, all of these things have costs associated with them um, that are environmental costs that we should consider too. So reusing your media is uh, the most sustainable and environmentally friendly option provided that you do it, um, you know, you do it correctly and have good IPM program set up to where you're managing your insects and pest pressure at a threshold that's below, um, an economic threshold that's below what it would cost you to replace the soil, I guess. Now, could you theoretically, like, is there, a, you know, if, if you're reamending your soil after every harvest, can you use that forever? Is there a time where essentially you have to say, okay, it's been five harvest, harvest, it's, you know, dead. What's the timeline look on reamending soil before it's no good? You know, I don't know. I, it, it's a little tricky because it's not like as a farmer, if you were growing in a field, you would throw out your soil. You know, you may let it sit fallow, you may plant cover crops, you may mm -hmm. do other things to improve the quality of that soil and fertility over time. Um, we try to do the same thing indoors with our cannabis soils, uh, except some of the challenges are we're monocropping, um, we are, don't have a downtime. You know, we're replanting into that soil 24 to 36 hours after harvest. 
And uh, so that soil is really working really, really hard. So the way we do it is with our company and the, and the people that we work with is we do a lot of soil testing and we try to apply as much science as possible to this process. So uh, we can, we can try and maintain the fertility of the soil. And, you know, we have guys that have gone five, seven years in the same soil. Um, they're great. You can check them out on Instagram and kind of follow along. Like uh, just today I was talking to my buddy, uh, Justin McGill, and he was, um, we're, we're, we're dealing with an issue right now where his nitrogen, his nitrates keep rising in his soil, but he's not adding any more nitrogen. So we're trying to figure out where this nitrogen's coming from so we can keep it at appropriate levels for his cannabis. And uh, part of the things is his soil, he was saying, has essentially turned into almost pure earthworm castings and pumice. So all that peat moss, because he's 13, 14 cycles in now, has oh. all broken down. And so uh, we're just we're figuring out how to manage it because we haven't dealt with worm populations this high um, in an indoor facility before. So there's always challenges, but I don't I don't know what that timeline looks like now. Most of the guys I've worked with around five years, they tend to start over, whether it's because something hits like yeah, root knot nematode that they, mm. you know, is, is maybe not worth dealing with at the time, or maybe the soil's gotten out of whack to the point where it's, it's more affordable to replace it than it is to try and rebalance it. Uh, so that stuff like that does happen. But, uh, you know, like I said, we have guys five, seven years in, in the same soil right now, which I feel like is, is pretty good. So as long as you got the, air air pores in there and the proper structure still going on then you should be able to keep cooking right um i'm, I'm curious uh yeah can i can i touch on that really yeah, quick yeah, Justin? absolutely because you brought up a really good point because so what we've been talking about so far is really just the nutrients and a little bit about the biology but you know you almost want to think of soil or soilless media like this uh like maybe three pillars or three sides of a triangle but um on one hand, you have the uh, physical properties of the soil, and that's something we really haven't talked about. Uh, that's, you know, what kind of gas exchange do you get? What kind of water holding capacity um, does it have? Is there room for the roots to spread out? Is the soil too compact? Is it too loose? These are all things that you want to consider when you're making up your soil. Um, and there's, in terms of like a base media, um, there's a lot of good information on that out there. I have free information on our blog page about, you know, the physical aspects of your soilless media or soil. Uh, the next kind of side of this is the, is the um, biological aspect, you know, the bacteria, archaea, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, all of these living microorganisms that are cycling these nutrients and making a plant of, available. Um, those are obviously really important to having good diversity and good biomass. And uh, so the biological aspects really, really important when we talk about, you know, living soils or reusing media, uh, all of these sorts of things. And then the last as aspect is, is the chemical properties of the soil. You know, what kind of micro and macronutrients does it have? That's when we start talking about NPK and, and all the things that you hear about from, a, you know, the hydro guys in terms of getting the right levels of all those those elements in there. So. Uh, you really want to look at all three aspects of those because they all work together. And whatever your limiting factor of growth is um, in your soil, whether it's the physical properties or the the nutrients, um, th that's what you really want to address. I um, wanted to know about as far as reamending. A lot of home growers are using the uh, the chemicals or the nutrient salts, as you had mentioned before. Um, is there any hope for them in reamending their soil or is that kind of like once once you've used synthetic fertilizers is that is that kind of kaput? 
That's a good question. So, you know, I'm an organic guy. I've only grown using organics uh, pretty much my entire life. Um, I'm not a I'm not a chemical nutrient guy. Uh, that being said, if we want to talk about this purely from a science perspective, you know, and take some of the you know bias and all of those things out of the conversation, uh, the plant really doesn't care whether those nitrates are come from an earthworm, you know, cycling those nutrients, or if they come. Uh, directly from ammonium nitrate, for example, so uh, in your chemical nutrient blend. So it, it really doesn't matter. Now, the issue with chemical nutrients in reusing soils is the over-application of salts. And when I say salts, I'm not referring to sodium chloride. I'm referring to a lot of these chemical salts, which is what you know, ammonium nitrate and these other nutrients are. So if your soil, if you're able to use up those salts in the soil and so to where you can manage your salinity at a level that's appropriate for plant health so your ec is not too high then yes that soil can absolutely be reused um, and part of that can sometimes that can just be as simple as leaching the media now if you're a if you're a home grower it's not that hard to leach a little bit of soil keep in mind that you're leaching it into your groundwater so you want to you want to factor that in too um, but if you're a large facility, you know, if you had 100 yards of, so of soilless media or cocoa core or whatever, then it becomes a little trickier. And that's where um, that, that's where I, th I think you have a, a better conversation about whether or not it's worth your time. Um, some of the best, healthiest plants I've ever seen were grown using a hybrid approach. So using a high quality media, like living a living soil media, and then feeding chemical nutrients over the top to address um, or push the plant just a little bit harder. I think it gives you the best of both worlds. If, we, if we're purely talking about overall yield and growth and, and even plant health to a certain extent. Um, and if you don't believe me, ch check out what giant pumpkin growers and giant vegetable grower guys are doing because uh, it's pretty amazing. That's sort of the evolution that they've come to. You know, for a while there, they were all into synthetics and they were just uh, pouring all of these nutrients every year on their patch. And they kind of maxed out on what they were able to do. And then they started incorporating organics and they started, you know, bringing in higher quality compost. They started um, using microbial additives like mycorrhizal fungus and genetics are obviously improving along the way too, just the same as they are in cannabis. You know, they were topping out around uh, 1200 pounds. And now, uh, you know, they're easily over 2000 pounds in terms of the, the pumpkins themselves. Uh, I don't know what the current world record is, but it's pretty incredible. That's crazy. Um, what they're That's able huge. to do. So, uh, so you, you mentioned compost teas. Um, I used started using compost teas last year in my vegetable garden, uh, and I had really good success. I don't have anything to compare it to because it was my first time growing, but I had yeah, really good yields, really healthy, delicious vegetables. Can you kind of talk about exactly what a compost tea is and, and really how to make it? Yeah, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on compost yeah. tea. That was really <laughs> where I started in this industry. Um, and it took me a couple of years before I really bought into the concept uh, so the, the basic idea with compost tea is you're taking um, a small amount of compost, which has all the you know, beneficial microorganisms in it. You're putting it into water, just like you would tea. And I think the tea thing came because you put it inside like a mesh bag, essentially. And uh, then you would aerate that and add a food source. So we're adding oxygen to the water to create an aerobic environment to select for aerobic microorganisms. Like if you 
dig down into good soil and you smell it, it has that like earthy smell. That's all that actinobacteria, all these really good beneficial microorganisms. Uh, there's a lot of oxygen in there. Whereas if you were to go to the edge of a swamp and dig in there, you know, you get that like stinky odor to it. All of those anaerobic smells, you know, it smells like rotten eggs or like vomit or things like that. Um, that's what we're trying to avoid in our, in our compost tea. So um, adding oxygen, aerobic environment, we're going to brew it for a period of time. Typically, this is 24 to 36 hours. And that just allows us to extract and replicate all those beneficial microorganisms that were in our original compost source. And so the amount of the concentrations of microorganisms that we're applying in that liquid compost tea that we brewed is exponentially higher than if we just taken that handful of compost and thrown it out in our garden. So it's a way to get more microbes across a larger surface in a liquid form. And that's really what compost tea is in a nutshell. There's a lot of science and microscopy that can go into it to make it a better process. Um, and there's a lot of ways to screw it up. But one of the reasons the scientific community hasn't really embraced it is because every time you make a batch, it's going to be different. You know, as, as a scientist, I want to control for every variable um, in my garden or in my experiment. And when I add something that, um, you know, literally I could, I could use the same inputs and, and do the same thing twice and end up with a completely different result. And I think that's what's challenging for people and for researchers. Uh, and that's one of the reasons compost tea doesn't have the same level of research as, as other, you know, sign uh, products or gardening methods. But, um, can, can I ask you, you a know, quick, I, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add one thing I want to add is you're also adding a little bit of nitrogen because that compost has a little bit of nitrogen in there. You're probably getting a little bit of other elements. So there are some, um, nutrients coming in with that too, but the main benefit is the nutrient cycling or biology that you're adding to the soil. Now, does a microbial content, it increases drastically through the food source and through the oxygen, right? Yes. And what you feed that the, the microbes in, in your tea are, it's going to determine what grows out too. So depending on your food source and also how long you brew, uh, will determine what your final brew looks like. And, uh, without a microscope, you can't really know for sure. You know, we as a company sell compost tea brewers and the inputs to go into them. And I can tell you approximately what you'll have at the end of a brewing cycle if you brew for this length, you know, at this air temperature using our inputs. But even then, it, there's still going to be some variability. Yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. Got, no, I'm asking too many. I have so well, many questions. So, <laughs> so it's, it's quality in, quality out, though, right? So you obviously have to start with a good compost. Can I achieve that just at home using my food scrap vegetables or am I, do I need to go out and build a good compost pit? You absolutely can achieve it at home. Uh, you know, one, a compost comprised purely of food scraps is probably not going to have the same level of biological diversity as you would get from, you know, earthworm castings. Even if you just took those same uh, scraps and put them into a worm bin, you'd end up with a much better, compost tea product or even compost product overall. Um, and one thing I want to touch on, because I get this asked, asked this question a lot, is when people talk about uh, making compost tea, it's really a shotgun approach. We're just trying to put out as many beneficial microorganisms as we can uh, with great diversity and then let, let the plant take control. We're not trying to target you know, the specific bacteria or this 
particular fungi. That's not the point of it. Um, some people will look at, like, they'll read Jeff Lowenfeld's book, Teeming with Microbes, which is a great book that kind of explains the background behind all this. Um, and they'll look at that and they'll say, okay, well, uh, there's this plant succession chart starting with, you know, bare soil all the way to old growth forests. And plants will have different fungal to bacteria ratios that they find in the soil, depending on the, the age and type of plant that's grown in it. And they say, okay, well, I'm growing tomatoes or I'm growing cannabis. And so that soil tends to be, you know, a little more bacterial, but have good fungal content. It's almost 50, 50 supposedly. So I want to make sure I have this type of a tea. And that's really not the point. Like I'm going to apply the same diverse compost tea to, um, you know, a, 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 an established landscape as I would to my tomato plants. You don't need to get caught up with saying, okay, I need to brew a bacterial tea for veg and a fungal tea for bloom, or I need to brew this type of tea because it's this type of plant mm -hmm. where the, the plant can control, uh, in its root zone, in the rhizosphere, based on the exudates it's putting out, it can control this process much better than we can trying to make a specific type of tea. So it's just something I want to mention. That bacteria, the fungal, that's just a, a function of the length of time in which you brew, right? Kind of, yeah. And, and so the food source, I, I'm, I'm sure as well. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the the reason... I mean, there's a certain amount of time that's required, you know, let's say six to eight hours for bacteria to even reproduce um, in the tea to where you'll get, you know, noticeable levels. And around 12 to 18 hours is when you'll start to see probably the most growth. Uh, and then the fungus, the fungi will start to grow too, the fungal hyphae in there. Um, and you can see it under a microscope in, you know, temperature, elevation, food source, uh, dissolved oxygen levels, all these things can affect your results. So in general, though, that 24 to 40, 24 to 36 hour window is optimal. If you brew too short, the microbes don't have time to reproduce. And if you brew too long, you'll find you just see the same morphology of microorganism. Um, and you'll see only like one, one type of uh, flagellate and one type of bacteria and pretty much everything else goes away. Um, basically what's happening is I, I use the analogy, I haven't come up with a better one yet of if you went to the zoo and opened all the gates, you know, at first you'd have this explosion of like breeding and, and prey and predation and all this diversity. But after about a week or two, all you'd have left is, I don't know, lions and rats and the lions would eventually probably die off, you know, if they weren't able to catch all the rats, you lose all of that diversity because everything else, you just have your apex predator and then your, you know, apex survivalist species. So you don't get that same real diversity that you want in your compost tea. It may still be beneficial, but it's not the same product. That's, that's interesting. Cause I, I was, ex when I was experimenting with compost tea, I'm very much, you know, my, my business revolves around full spectrum cannabis. And I think full spectrum pretty much applies to most things in life where optimal amount diversity breeds, you know, optimal results. And I think that goes, that was my theory and how I was creating compost tea. So I was using fish shit. I was using vermicompost lachate, scoop a recharge. So it is fair to say, you know, everything in moderation, obviously, but the more diverse in your teas, the better. You know, yes and no. So I, I don't think having all those different things in there is necessarily a bad thing. Um, whether or not you're getting benefit from all of them sure. would be probably a the, the real question. Um, 
I tend to not add microbial based products to my compost tea because uh, my assumption is that they may just becoming very expensive food sources. Like I'd be more inclined to try and take my microscope and brew out recharge with some different food sources, which I've actually done. Um, and with mammoth pea as well and make my own tea of just using that as sort of my microbial addition rather than trying to um, add those things into it. And one thing you certainly don't want to add to your compost tea is mycorrhizal fungus. Uh, mycorrhizal fungus is a root symbiont. Um, so it has to come in contact with your roots or the root exudates in order to grow. So adding it to your compost tea is not going to, you know, replicate it or uh, do anything really other than potentially make it a really expensive food source for the rest of your uh, microbes in that mix. Noted. <laughs> that makes that makes a bunch of sense, actually. Um, I, my, my thoughts were that it would just kind of lay dormant, but I guess it probably would end up getting eaten in there as that mix. Okay. It, it could, it could very well survive the dormant, you know, in a dormant stage. But then the other thing about it is it needs to come in direct contact with the roots of your plants. So if you're watering it in, you're probably not getting that contact or it's not getting to the rhizosphere really anyway. So you're probably not getting a mycorrhizal infection okay. to the same rates that you would be if you just put it right into the soil, you know, directly in contact with the roots. Okay. So if we're trying to use a microbial inoculant, would you recommend than something that is more of like a, a dusting application as opposed to one of those water soluble forms? It depends on the microbial inoculant. In the case of mycorrhizal fungus, absolutely. It should be added at the time of transplant directly to the root zone. Um, other ones can, it can absolutely be watered in. Like, uh, you know, if you wanted to use, you know, you mentioned recharge, um, that's a bacterial based product. If you wanted to use something like, uh, Oh, like mammoth pea, it's the same sort of thing. Those can, those can be watered in no problem. I, yeah, I definitely meant to say mycorrhizal fungus. I misspoke there, but that's, uh, oh. yeah, I 100% am a huge, huge, uh, fan of both recharge and mammoth pea. So I don't, I don't want to like sound like I'm knocking on the soluble <laughs> products by any means, but, um, <clears throat> I have a question about uh, nutrient availability in, in the context of organic nutrients. You know, one of the things that is difficult about organic, you know, using organics is that, you know, if you have a, a, a an issue with a plant um, and you have to, and you diagnose it and you use uh, some sort of organic amendment, it's not, a, it's not available right then and there because there is this process through microbials that uh, where it needs to break down. Is there certain microbials or certain products or really, I guess, certain microbes that facilitate breakdown of these uh, amendments faster and make them available faster? That's a really good question. I, I don't know that I have a great answer to that. I mean, in order for a plant to take in a nutrient, and this is not a hard and fast rule, but just speaking, you know, very generally, uh, that, that nutrient needs to be in an ionic form. Um, and one of the issues with organics is most nutrients that we come across are not um, chelated or in a form where the plant can immediately take them up. So uh, in terms of an actual specific microbe that may increase the efficacy of that product or process. I, I don't know. I mean, there are, there are, there is research that shows, you know, certain species of bacillus and, and, you know, certain things like mycorrhizal fungus can increase nutrient uptake, but I don't know how quick that occurs. So like if I had a plant that was really suffering, um, and I knew, 
and, and this is, this brings up another thing to talk about here, but if I knew what deficiency I actually had and it truly was a deficiency, um, then the, the, probably the easiest way would be to apply a chemical version of that. Now you can kind of cheat. Like if I knew I had a, um, let's say a phosphorus deficiency, uh, as an organic grower, I, I happen to know that, um, fish hydrolysate is stabilized with phosphoric acid. That's what kicks the P levels up in the fish hydrolysate products. So I could apply fish hydrolysate, um, technically even as an organic grower and, and get phosphorus to that plant right away. Um, even though it's not technically organic, but it would be in a form the plant could uptake faster. Um, but one thing I wanted to talk about now that you brought up deficiencies is that it's really important that people realize that when you see a plant deficiency, that doesn't necessarily mean that that soil is deficient in that nutrient. Because unlike hydro, you know, those nutrients aren't always available. And a lot of it relates back to the root hairs on your plant. So when you overwater or you underwater, um, essentially what you're doing is you're killing root hairs. And when the plant doesn't have uh, the, the healthy root hairs, it's not able to take up nutrients effectively. So a lot of times when people talk, you know, send me photos of deficiencies or issues with their plants on the leaves, I start with watering. I mean, that's the very first thing in soil that we need to look at to figure out what's going on. Uh, to determine if there really is truly a, a deficiency. And then I usually send them over to uh, the paper written by Paul Coxon on cannabis deficiencies. It's a free download. I, I literally just posted about it on Instagram the other day again, uh, and I had him on the podcast. But that's the only university research that, that shows what happens when you remove an, an element from a plant completely. And he does that with potassium, nitrogen, all the major macro and micronutrients um, and takes photos of them. So those are the photos to look at. Because if you go online and type in calcium deficiency cannabis, you'll see a million different photos of leaves and not all of those are accurate. So that's where I like to start when we talk about deficiencies. There, there is one thing, though, that I, I would like to bring up in regards to that. If I'm remembering correctly, it was just one cultivar that they studied, right? Yes. So yes. There, it is important to note out that it could be different, um, di a little bit different uh, symptoms displayed cultivar dependent, but just, I just want to make really a note of that. Point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I wanted to uh, make brief mention of your website. I love how you have uh, the all of the different amendments categorized into like which nutrient they're going to provide. Um, so I noticed as I was going through there that obviously some of these amendments are listed uh, for more than one nutrient, which makes sense that they're providing more than one nutrient. Um, I was wondering if there's like a minimalist approach to amendments, if there is like maybe three or four main amendments that somebody could try to build their own soil with like, I don't know, maybe like a purchased, purchased peat moss, uh, Lambert will say, I don't know, just, just mm -hmm. I'd throwing out random brands, but that's irrelevant. I think, uh, other than maybe what their pH value is, but, um, yeah, I think, you know what I'm getting at here. Sorry. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of options out there. I was trying to start with what's easy for you to source. One of the original recipes that people talk about um, is the one from Clackamas Coot. It's 
called Coots Mix, and I think we have the recipe right on our website. Uh, there's been a few different iterations of it, but um, yeah, I mean, I guess I wouldn't get too caught up. Like if you want to go and find out what the NPK value of a feather meal is, for example, you can go on our website and we'll list it, you know, 1200. So you'll know it's 12% nitrogen, doesn't have any, you know, noticeable uh, potassium or phosphorus. Or you can, you know, on our drop down menu, you can say add nitrogen and it'll be one of the options there. So we definitely have that on our website just as a resource for folks, whether you're, you know, buying product or not. And then we're working on, but haven't released yet, uh, a nutrient calculator where you can put in um, something like feather meal at 1200 and say you're going to add, you know, this much of it by volume to your soil. And then you want to add this much kelp meal and this much crustacean meal and these different things and it'll calculate the uh, total NPK value that you're applying to your plant. So that's something where we, we need to just get up on our website. We have the calculator on the back end, um, but that's something I'm, I'm looking forward to because there is research out there. You know, I just did an interview with Jack's fertilizer and they've got very targeted results based off of tissue testing in terms of what they believe is optimal for most cannabis plants. So there's no reason not to utilize that on the organic side and, and try and hit targets similar or close. Yeah, let us know when that's available because not only will I use it, and we'll probably both use it, but we'll share it for you. Um, everywhere. Everywhere. Um, sure, yeah, yeah. So uh, you just did a, a recent episode on biochar. At least you had a discussion about biochar, and I really started, I, you know, it's becoming pretty popular in cannabis. I've heard at a lot of the hemp conferences I've been to over the year years and I, I wound up on this TEDx video last night of this gentleman talking all about biochar uh, and it's really fascinating I didn't really know much about it until the other night when I took you know kind of a, a midnight deep dive on my computer while I'm laying in bed um, can you kind of give me a, a little bit of a high level description of what biochar is and why it is uh, a good amendment for soil I will try it it's uh it's fairly complicated but also very simple so the, the key with biochar is we're, we're taking typically wood, but some sort of combustible material. And the most common way is to pyrolyze it. So to heat it at very, very high temperature, at very, very low oxygen conditions. And what this creates is a material that looks very similar to charcoal, but has very different pro properties. It's not going to be super high in potash like you find with um, charcoal. Uh, it's going to be a lot cleaner of contaminants and things like that. And the biggest thing is it sequesters the carbon. So when used by forestry departments or other other uh, agricultural services, we're able to capture that carbon rather than losing it to the atmosphere. Um, from a plant perspective, what it does is it's a wonderful habitat for microbes, and it's a really uh, has really high cation exchange capacity. So it's able to retain nutrients in the soil profile for plants and release them at a rate that's fairly optimal for plant growth. So, uh, you know, like compost tea, there's a lot of variability in terms of what's out there on the market. There's a lot of claims around it. Um, so you wanna, you wanna find a good company or a good product or make your own, but make sure you're making it correctly. And um, yeah, we see about eight to nine better, or eight to 9% better growth and yield with the addition of biochar um, and, and you're only adding it at about five to eight percent of your total media. It's uh, and you only it's a pretty much just a one-time addition. So it's a wonderful, easy way to increase the quality of your soil. 
Yeah, I was in this TEDx video. They were showing a like a, a micro uh, a biochar under a microscope, and it's like has so many different pores. It looks like terrestrial almost and it's you know the point was like it has so much pores and it's really really good at, at holding water so you know if you're ever in a, 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 a drought ridden area or if you know it just it was just a really really fascinating and who would have thought and I think from you know a sustainability perspective and a resource recovery perspective we're starting to see what used to be trash you know whether it's food waste or charcoal now being used as some of the most powerful and beneficial amendments out there um I don't know. I think it's really cool. The cannabis industry has kind of brought this to light in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, I'm personally interested in using it in my garden, but what I have realized that a little bit, I've done a little research on it. It's really expensive right now. And I think that maybe there's not really uh, a lot of people making it, at least in our area. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely interested in incorporating it into my garden. Yeah. I mean, it can be, it, you can literally make it yourself by digging a pit. I mean, that's the cheapest, easiest way to do it. We have something called a Contiki kiln and that's with a K and uh, like for example right now I have I have an acre of blackberries I'm dealing with at my house that I'm slowly uh, cutting up and what I, we're gonna do is my dad's gonna bring over the kiln I'm gonna burn them all up so what started out as you know giant piles of blackberries will be broken down to like a very small amount of, of uh, biochar so not only are we sequestering the carbon are we we're burning and getting rid of a lot of organic matter that, you know, is taking up space on my property that I need to do something with. But we're also creating a gardening product that I can then take that material and put it back onto the land um, and, and utilize it that way. So uh, the, these biochars are an amazing, uh, amazing resource for people. Um, and there's a lot, there's a ton of different ways to use it. There's a ton of different ways to make it. Um, you'll want to do your research, but I, I highly suggest checking it out. Good to know. Thank you. That's that's one of my favorite things I think about um, or, organic gardening and sustainable practices is just the the self sustainability, self reliability. Um, and it seems like the more land area you have, the more uh, ability you have to be able to do this, right? And so somebody like myself, I live in an apartment, and I am naturally drawn to these organic practices, but I don't really have too much space to be able to incorporate them. Um, I do have a worm bin that I function regularly, but is there anything else that I could could be doing to kind of be more sustainable or, or help maybe build my, my own inputs or amendments uh, in that small living space? Yeah, that's really tough in an apartment. Um, I think a worm bin's a good start, you know, as long as you can manage the fungus gnats and flies and things, um, and you're okay with that, then a worm bin's a great option. Some people will do bokashi or uh, black soldier flies if you have a balcony. Uh, those are two other ways of composting material. Uh, as someone who had an urban farm, there was a lot of different uh, fruit trees and vegetables and things that you can grow on a balcony like uh, columnar apples, if you've never seen those before, they're really cool apple trees that literally grow just on one branch straight up and you can get 50 to 100 apples per tree and you can grow them right there on your, uh, right there on your balcony if you get enough sun. So uh, there's a lot of fun stuff you can grow Cool, but uh, I, I, I don't know. It is you're, not, you're not making your own amendments or anything, yeah. <laughs> I do have a little bit, a little bit of a yard. I'm in a, in a side by side, so I'm not like in a, in a high rise or anything of that nature, but, but yeah, it, it is, it's definitely tough. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, that's so where that's where we started the whole business was because I wanted to make my own soil and and try a lot of these amendments and uh, you know you couldn't find anything under a fifty pound bag and I was just a small grower at the time and I only needed a couple pounds of this and a couple pounds of that so that's that's where Kiss Organics really really began fifteen years ago now. Wow, fifteen years that's huge. Going going back to the your origin a little bit there. Um, that we are kind of I think getting close to the end of our time, but so I don't want to like dive into a new huge exciting topic that's going to take us forever. But do you want to talk a little bit about your time in Australia? Because that seems like something that not a whole lot of people here in the U.S. get to do. Yeah, uh, so I, I I can touch on it for sure. I decided to uh, I wanted to go back to school. I didn't want to do it in America. I wanted to try somewhere new. And based on the my ability to speak Spanish, that really limited where I could go. And if I had to choose between England or uh, Australia, really, at that point, um, I had to go with Australia. So I went down there, got my master's degree in special education. Awesome experience. Uh, very different uh, culture, um, different soils, different uh, agricultural challenges in terms of of things that they're dealing with down there, which is really interesting. Um, but uh, overall, yeah, it was a it was a wonderful experience. So I, I highly recommend it if you ever get a chance cool. to uh, to do it. Check it out. Um, so we are coming down to the end, um, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to plug anything that you guys are doing with Kiss. What's coming out? What are you working on? Any breaking news that we that you can share with us about what's going on at Kiss at the moment? Yeah, so we're always looking to innovate and change things. Um, you know, we've had some soil mixes for a long time now. We have a veggie mix, a commercial growers mix, a biochar, a water only. We have these soils, but I'm always looking to lower the heavy metals in them, uh, improve the quality of them. Um, I'm looking to, at working on a vegan mix. So I just found a good phosphorus source finally that I can use that allows me to get the phosphorus I need from uh, a mine source rather than from an animal source. So uh, I'm excited for that. I'm working with uh, Black Swallow in Canada right now on um, a grow and bloom formula that would be available both in the United States and in Canada. Uh, so we're formulating that at the moment, and I have formulated a soil for them in Canada if people want to try a living soil and live in Canada. And then uh, on the chemical nutrient side, it's not something I'm uh, as passionate about, but one thing I do like is my friend Nelson over at Poetry Plants has developed a fertilizer that's a controlled release fertilizer. So if you are growing with chemical nutrients and you want to do it more sustainably, uh, it's called Beanstalk Agriculture. We do sell it on our website. And uh, essentially you just add like a small amount per pot in there and then it slowly releases those chemical nutrients over time. It makes the growing process very, very simple. And at the end, your media is not full of all of these uh, salts either. So most of the nutrient is being used up by the plant. So it's a good, simple, easy way to grow cannabis um, if you do want to use chemical nutrients. So. Awesome. I did actually, uh, just because you brought up the salts, it made me think about a question that I forgot to ask you earlier. Um, I am curious, when you have a, a water-only soil on your website, and these, these types of soils are always super interesting to me, I'm wondering how long does that actually sustain, and is like, can I take it full cycle or if, as long as I'm up-potting, or how, how does that work? 
Yeah, I mean, you can you can only fit so much nutrients into a given amount, a given volume of media. So, like, you're not going to grow a five foot plant in a two gallon pot. That you brought up a really good point. But if you scale it appropriately, like in a fifteen gallon pot, for example, you could definitely go a full cycle plant with nothing but water. Um, again, I, I mentioned my buddy Justin McGill. It's at uh, J McGilla on Instagram. He does nothing but water for the entire cycle. So he amends with our nutrient pack at the beginning into these beds. And because he has beds, he's able to do this. And his plants look incredible. His yields are very high. Um, and his costs are relatively low because all he's, all he's having to add each cycle is just some of these dry amendments. And then water the plants. So, yeah, it, it's very possible. That's that's awesome to know. I, I definitely want to uh, tran- transition myself that way, but uh, I've been nervous to... Uh, space wise. I've mentioned before on the show, I tried to do the whole organic soil and I got all my amendments and mixed them up and then it worked too well and there was bugs everywhere. And I was, <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I can handle this. So abort mission. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a good sign to have bugs, process. just not in your house. <laughs> yeah. And I tell people, you know, try a plant or two. You don't have to commit your whole garden to it. Yeah. See if you like growing this way. Um, it's a different process and it takes a little bit of, there's a learning curve in terms of your watering um, and the way you care for your plant. That's very different. So um, yeah, I'm sorry to hear you had bugs. It's, it's a reality in, in this. Uh, when you talk about living soil, you're going to have, you're going to have bugs and some of them are going to be beneficial like grove beetles or hypoaspis mites. And some of them are going to be, uh, you know, you're probably going to get fungus gnats. Let's just throw that out there. That's right. one thing you're going to have to deal with when we, when we add a compost fraction in any soil. Unfortunate evil, but they don't do the worst anyways. You know, I mean, their babies nibble a little bit, but they'll be okay. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for coming on today, Ted. I'd love if maybe we could try to get you back on the show to pick your brain a little bit more in the future. Um, yeah, thank you uh, so much. Like I said, you've been a mentor from afar. You're a wizard, you know, you're always uh, a go-to source for me personally. Um, love your podcast, love what you're doing from the industry, love your products. Uh, thank you for giving us your time. It's been great. Seriously. Yeah. And everybody on here, go check out the cannabis cultivation and science podcast. All right. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, this is another episode of cannabis cum laude. Our guest today was Ted Hussey and we'll see you next week. Thanks everybody. Thanks to our friends here at Rockbox Recording and Production in Rochester, New York. They are a full professional podcast and video studio designed by a radio guy for podcasters. Audio, video, voiceovers, editing, whatever. Mouth off at Rockbox at rockbox.com. You can follow Cannabis Cum Laude on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Cannabis. Type Cannabis Cum Laude into your search bar and you should be able to find us, but the links will also be posted in the episode notes as well. If you want to help support the show, head on over to Patreon, and that will ensure that we're able to keep the best quality sound and video coming to you on a regular basis. And if you liked what you heard today, please don't forget to rate and review the show.